Well, good evening. This is a wonderful group. How many of you think of yourselves as new to practice? Okay. And how many of you think of yourself as really well-read in the Dharma? All right. Great. Um, Because (laughs) I'm about to jump into the deep end here. I, I picked a topic that um, is really difficult. And I think it's because, well, it's, it's the heart, really, of what this is all about. The topic, uh, in case you haven't seen it written anywhere, is um, exploring identity and self. And I want to, before you forget, I want to refer you back to what you just did in sitting and meditating. And for those of you who hate instructions, I apologize. But I had, there was a reason uh, to my madness, which was to draw your attention. And, and, you know, I, I hope it helped a little in seeing the difference in experience when we're actually paying attention to the physical sensations of the body and when we're off in what's manufactured by our minds. Did did anybody pick up on that at all? Anybody get a glimmer? That's great. That's great. For the rest of you, maybe there is, maybe there isn't a difference. When we pay close attention to the sensations that are coming into the senses, we're right here and right now. We're experiencing that part of our phenomenal lives that can be depended on as real. So, the rest of the time, we're somewhere else. We're in some other time zone. And often, we're we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to be here now, and our mind is also processing abstract thoughts. And, And I'm not really passing a judgment on any of these. It's just helpful if we notice and that's the and I want to say in advance that's kind of the goal of my topic tonight is to just notice this phenomenon of identity and I hope as I go along tonight you'll see how terribly important that can be so let me just pause here and ask you in your own mind to answer this question. Who am I? I find when I answer that question, the kinds of things that come up are gender, for me, height, I'm short, my politics, the things that I'm good at, 
whether I'm funny or smart or cute or blah, 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 blah. Stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff that comes up for me. And some of these things are created by others. And some of the things make us uncomfortable. And some of the things we try to hide. But whether we think of a piece of our identity as good or bad, it's not real. In the sense that reality is right here, right now. It's the thing that's being experienced right now. So when I think of myself as short, and I often get off onto, you know, tall persecution, uh, especially when I'm in a crowded room trying to see, you know, anyway, I can really spin off on that. The only time I'm actually short is when I'm trying to get that thing off the top shelf. You know, and then it's just a matter of how do I get it? You know, that is the real experience. The rest of the stuff is just junk in my mind. And how I feel about things often is filtered through all these pieces of junk in my mind. Now, I'm sorry that I used that word, and there's going to be a lot of apologizing that I do tonight, because identity, while it's an illusion, it's an illusion that has very real consequences. But let's go back to why this is important. And that's this idea of experience being filtered through what I think of myself, who I think I am, the things that I cling to as part of my identity. The buzzword there is cling. You may have heard that before. When Buddha taught What he wanted to teach people was how it is that there is so much suffering in our lives and how to end it. So the the first two of the Four Noble Truths are that there is suffering and that the source of the suffering is craving, also known as clinging or aversion that often people refer to greed, hatred, and delusion. So these are the sources of suffering in the root source of the greed and the hatred is the delusion. And what's the delusion about? Who I am. So this is the importance of identity. It's where the suffering comes from. 
I'm not saying that there is no self. And in fact, nowhere in the scriptures does Buddha say that either. What he says is, this isn't the self, and that isn't the self, and that isn't the self. And it is a very wonderful exercise to look at all the things that we mistakenly assume are us. Like, you know, my being short or, you know, whatever. There are some, uh, as I said before, there are some things that make us feel really good about ourselves and some things that maybe make us not feel good. But say, for example, I moved to a community where the average height was four foot ten. You know, suddenly this trait, this characteristic that I think is me, isn't going to be true anymore. Maybe somebody takes a lot of pride in the color of the hair or the color of their eyes. And, um, you know, you get up in the morning and think, gee, I really look good. That's a great combination. And then you read in the morning paper that geneticist has found a link between this particular combination and, well, something bad. You know, and, and so it's going to change. These things that we think of as our identity, not only do they cause suffering, but they're unreliable. In fact, these two things go together. Change and suffering. I have a couple of friends right now who have illnesses. They're very smart people, but their illnesses are affecting their their minds, their brains, and they're losing their intelligence. And you can imagine the suffering that goes with that because so many of us do. That's another thing we cling to. I'm however smart it is I am. And having things change and loss like that can be very unsettling. So they're the source of suffering, not just when they fail us, but also because they affect the way we see things. Uh, I apologize for the weak examples, but Say I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I think, yeah, I just don't, I'm just not looking good today. And I'm walking along and I see somebody I know and they say, hey, is that a new shirt? Now, on that particular day, I may think what they're trying to say is, boy, you've got bad taste. But uh, if I had woken up that morning and I was thinking I looked good, I'd think, oh, they like this shirt. And they didn't say either of those things at all. They just said, hey, is that a new shirt? So our clinging, the, the power of our identity warps our experience. And the example I just gave is very, very simplistic the way that identity warps our 
experience is very, very complex and very powerful. Now, it, uh, I want to say in advance that it, it doesn't do any good to say, well, that's just identity, it's not real. I'll just let go of it. I'll get rid of it. It doesn't do me any good to say that to myself. And it certainly doesn't do any good to say to somebody else, oh, that's, that's your identity. It's an illusion. You know, get over it. Because in the first place, it's rude. And in the second place, it denies their experience because identity does have very real consequences. Um, you know, for example, um, I have some disabilities. Uh, I have hidden disabilities. And um, there are times when it gets me down. And if some were, someone were to say to me, oh, you know, you're not, don't, don't think of yourself that way. You know, it just, it's, it's just an illusion. You can do X, Y, and Z. It denies the suffering that I'm in and the, the very real fact that there are some things I can't do. For example, I, or I, I'll just say that there's a wonderful group of people I associate with. I meditate with them. And they planned an event this weekend. Um, I'm recovering from surgery on my leg, and one of the things they wanted to do that day was start with a long walk. And that excluded me. And uh, we ended up handling it very, very well. Because what they did was, you know, I mentioned I, I can't go on that walk. And what they did was come to me and say, Oh, what is your experience? How can you be a part of our group? So they brought compassion and real interest to this thing that was I was seeing as a part of me. You know, my disability. And that enabled me to kind of relax around it and say, yeah, no, I can't go for a long walk, but I can do. I can join you with something else. And we worked it out, and we now have a schedule that I'm going to be able to participate in fully without feeling like I've spoiled their fun. And this is what we can do for ourselves, too. When we find that we're trapped in some notion of who we are that's uncomfortable instead of saying oh go away you know I deny you you're not real we can just bring a a compassionate and genuine interest to what is this experience it's like saying hmm I think I'm X and Y hmm Well, what does it feel like if I entertain the thought 
that maybe I'm not X or Y. How does that feel in the body? And that's actually what I'm recommending you do. To look at the effect that these notions of identity have in the body when the mind encounters them. Because the body doesn't lie. And the mind will take it and run. Um, I was talking today with another person who has hidden disabilities. And I got to that part. I was kind of rehearsing this talk. I got to that part with her. And we had to really kind of slow down and process her emotional reactions. We both had to bring that, that compassionate interest to what her experience was. Because it's so strong, the reaction is. So let me ask you this. Are you beginning to see why the topic of diversity might be something that's important for a meditation practice or a spiritual life. What is prejudice but one group's belief that their identity makes them better than some other group that they've identified? And what does it do? It does the same thing that all of these other notions about our identity do to us. It causes suffering and it warps the way we see things. And on the social level, it forces people deeper and deeper into the delusion of identity. I think we've all at some point felt excluded for some characteristic. Maybe it didn't even seem very important to us. You know, being left-handed. Or maybe that is important, and I certainly don't mean to minimize it. But, um, you know, people, it used to be a big, really big deal in schools. People were forced to work with their right hand, even if coordination was better than their left. It made a big deal out of it and uh, brought a lot of suffering to something that nowadays is easily accommodated. So... For the person that's putting pressure on someone because of some aspect of their identity, it's also harmful. And in my notes, I, I refer to this person as 
well, a word that is way too harsh. But let's face it, there is bigotry in this world. And for the person who has that uh, urge to discriminate, the harm is that it forces them into this delusion of identity. And they, it becomes even more important to them. You know, especially if they're successful in putting someone else down. Uh, there have been a lot of psychological tests that, you know, the, the, the oppressor class, for whatever criterion is involved, is maybe even more psychologically harmed than the oppressed class. And I think this is the reason because it really does warp our way of seeing things and it puts us in a position where we're clinging ever harder to this notion that that's who we are. I want to relate to you an experience I had this last weekend that just, it caused an explosion in my mind. A friend of mine said, hey, the College of Alameda is going to do DNA testing. Um, And for $150, which is steep, but it's not the full cost of it. It's actually fairly expensive. I could go in and get my DNA tested to find out about my ancestry back 50 to 70,000 years. Now, I don't have the results yet, but just going into the room to have this test taken, was it, I, I ended up in tears. Um, uh, for one thing, I sat and I looked around, and, you know, kind of like this room, there were all sorts of us. And... And we were all here for the same reason, to find our common humanity. And then the guy started talking, and he explained a lot, and then he showed a film where this DNA testing that I've become a part of uh, has shown the actual migration of modern humans out of Africa. And for those of you to whom this is old hat, I apologize, but it, it was news to me that they have actually found the tribe of Kalahari Bushmen who have that genetic marker that's shared by every other human on the planet. These are the people, this is the tribe, from which all of the rest of us migrated around the world. And that group, that first group, went along the coast, around India, Indonesia, took a boat ride, and is settled in as the Australian Aborigines. 
the next group went up to Central Asia and hung out for a long time. A long time. A really long time. And they found a man who had the genetic marker that's shared by all of the people who went to Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Basically the rest of the world. In all of these different branches, they know what the markers are. But as I sat there, having seen this movie, and known that I was in a room full of people who had had their DNA tested during this process to find out our common ancestry, I was so moved to know that we're 99% the same. There's only 1%. There's less than that 1% that accounts for any differences among us. And I, I was sitting with a friend whose ancestors spent time in Africa and who came to the Americas before Europeans did. And I said, I am so happy to be able to say that I too am an African American. And I just was in a state of delight. That was at three o'clock that this program was over. And then I went out into the world. (laughs) And as the hours went by, I began to realize more and more that I could not just walk into a room and announce that. There There is a no population in which I could just, that would be the opening remark and I would, people would be happy to hear me say that. Because so much is attached to this, to my identity, I don't have the right to say that. Or do I? You know? So much is attached to identity that it's very, very difficult for us to think about it. And unfortunately, it's very, very difficult for us to have a dialogue about it. But ultimately, this is where our practice leads. Because what does this do? This separating out Besides forcing us into notions that warp our understanding of what's true right now, it cuts off the very real connection that we have with all other beings. It closes the heart on a very real level. Do you know that there is a molecule somewhere in my body, maybe right here, that a long, 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 long time ago was on the other side of the universe? 
I don't know where the molecule is in your body, but, you know, we all have those molecules. So what separates us in reality is a lot less than what separates us in our minds. And when we're able to see that and open up our hearts to each other, we begin to let ourselves off the hook of the straitjacket we construct of our identities. So that's all that I prepared to say as a monologue this evening. So maybe we can just sit for a while. And as you have questions or comments, if it's just a comment, maybe try to keep it to about a minute. It doesn't have to be a question, but as something comes up, please feel free. Just raise your hand. I notice my attachment to my identity with the quickening of my heart at the thought of taking the microphone to share a comment and the fear of public speaking and how I might be judged by other selves. You mentioned a a group that you were going to participate in and because you had a disability, you wouldn't have been able to um, do the long walk and you were able to tell them about that. Could another um, course have been not to tell them about that and to um, experience what would have happened in your body or your experience at the time and deal with that? You mean in thinking about it or actually trying to take the walk? Not taking the walk, maybe not even saying anything, but staying with the experience. I had a similar uh, circumstance. I was injured at work, and it disabled me for several years. And I had very few visits from friends. And... uh, I, I can't say that was a terrible experience. I, I think it opened uh, a, a doorway for me. But when I tell people about it, they say, oh, you can't say that. <laughs> I do. <laughs> the experience itself, it seems, would be, um, I mean, um, I remember sitting in the middle of my front room night after night just saying, with what it was that I was experiencing. And um, I didn't feel lonely or anything else. Would that be a Buddhist thing to do? Very. Okay. I'm new. I'm sorry. Sounds like a very wise and, and compassionate thing to do for yourself. And actually, that's what I'm recommending for people to do. I hope I made it clear that I don't th- I'm not recommending that you uh, try to take a hatchet to your idea of who you are and get rid of it 
you know, like this month. Uh, not likely this lifetime, even. But gradually to notice when points of identity come up and just sort of examine that with, with the, that, the loving and compassionate interest that you just were talking about. What does it mean that I think this about myself? There was one fellow this last weekend at this, um, or one fellow we heard about at that DNA testing, who, um, when he got the results, he was a very unhappy person. Because he found out there was something in his ancestry he didn't like. And he's actually tried to, to sue the scientist. So, you know, one might suggest, well, why don't you see how it feels in your body (laughs) when you consider that maybe you're not what you think you are. I'm going on a year of, of a daily routine and I'm noticing things falling or seeing things and then they're falling away. Um, Just child, you know, things from childhood, whatnot, conditioning and upbringing, that kind of those kinds of things. Um, so I appreciate your thoughts on the long-term observations that you've experienced. Also, I've noticed um, through reading that the heart really seems to be the key in terms of um, clear vision and kind of really your that true identity um, along with the universal kind of identification. So any comments on the... Um, role of the heart in terms of compassion, love, those kinds of um, attributes. That would anything you might have to share. Thank you. That's a wonderful big question. Instead of starting from the long-term practice, uh, I just want to say that at about, well, for all of us, it's in a different place, but at a certain point in practice, there's a tendency for people to drop out because we begin to see things about ourselves we don't like. You know, it's like thoughts come up and we don't want to identify with them. So don't. You know, the brain makes thoughts. I don't get up in the morning and say, okay, here's the menu of thoughts I want to have today. You know, the thoughts just come up. And so I think the role of the heart in practice at any stage is to be accepting, to accept and not cling, to accept that we sit and meditate and our minds are like grasshoppers, and that's just how it is. And we bring a little bit of effort to it, And if it seems to be working, maybe a little more. And if it's really hard, then maybe we back off a little. So the role of the heart is to be open and accepting of what is and to recognize we're all in this together. 
if you feel like you're failing, it's not that you, this particular individual, is failing in a way no one else has ever failed before. You know, we all have the same difficulties in trying to come back to the reality of the moment. Which is what is real. What we really are. With regard to identity, what place does personal have? And how would we regard the ability to choose? Oh, boy. Could you elaborate a little on what, what you mean, where that's coming from? Yeah. Um, I'm very new to this. And um, I went through a course uh, of five uh, lessons and the hindrances to meditation. And uh, I wondered, when they say, go back and uh, focus on your breathing, where that comes from? You mean the ability to, to do the focusing? Focusing or choosing to focus uh-huh. as opposed to letting it go and flying through the thoughts. All right. Well, where does it feel like to you that it's coming from? Well, identity is a big thing. And uh, it feels like it must be more than what I know. Like, I don't know, I have images in my head. Like, what I thought was identity was sort of like a suit of armor. And I took the suit of armor off. And um, now I don't have an image and um, in Christianity, they might call that the soul. Um, but it seems a whole lot different than just you, you concoct an image for that also. Mm-hmm. So would I just let go of where the choice comes from? or Yeah, because it sounds like a philosophical issue, you know, one of analysis and the reality is that when we're meditating there is effort and effort can be brought to this focusing of attention most or there is interest and interest will bring the attention there most of my life I made very little effort (laughs) and then suddenly I could make effort that's a mystery to me. <laughs> well, it's something to explore. Now we had a question here. You're going to pass on it? Was there a question up there too? No? Someone was scratching, I guess. Okay. We'll get back to you. I too have a hidden disability. I'm sitting on it right now. And... Um, My question has to do with, well, I've been coming here for close to a year and a half, but not as much as I'd like. So far, I've made it to one half-day meditation, and, uh, you know, I... uh, Physically, I just don't know how to make it through it. Like right now, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I stand up. 
I may just walk across the room or I may stumble around for a while. I'm not going to collapse. I know that. But I'm just kind of, you know, it hurts. And that half day, you know, the rest of the day, uh, the whole problem was just exacerbated. And then it makes the next few days, you know, difficult. And I, I still work and I have to. So I just, you know. I don't know what to do about my personal practice in coming here, and I feel like I'm not near as far along as I was, you know, after I'd been coming here for, say, six months. Of course, the other thing is I've been hit with a tragedy in my family, so that's really knocked me off the tracks. And so I want to, you know, figure out how to get back here and, and not ruin my body. Yeah. At home, I meditate usually uh, not flat, but reclining. It depends on the day. Yeah. Um, those are really important questions, and I'll be happy to share with you my experiences and some of the ways I've, I've dealt with them. So maybe we can talk afterwards okay. about that. But, you know, this... This is another aspect of identity is sometimes we don't know it. We have no idea that the person next to us has something going on that's really, really important to them. So, um, that's, you know, it's just another thing that's good to be aware of. Um, did you want to do a follow up? Can we get the mic back there? We've got like two minutes left, right? How are we doing, Maureen? Okay. In, in Vipassana, you know, the whole notion of um, following your breathing and also in the present moment, you know, how sound is something that is always in the present and just letting that pull us into the present. So but I'm curious if just pretend that we could just our brains or someone had the ability to remain in that present moment always and maybe not things crashing in their mind and being all distracted is that I'm just curious is that that seems to be um, not the goal but it seems as if even after 20 years of meditating that would be the case where you just be in the present and hear things or pay attention to your body or follow your breathing and that would basically be it I mean chop wood you know before enlightenment chop wood carry water after enlightenment chop wood carry water so is that kind of good news it gets better <laughs> That was an easy question. It does get better. But uh, go slowly and gently and with compassion, please. And be well. <laughs> 